Hey guys, what's going on? Welcome to another edition of the Sam Bissell Podcast on the Ambiguous Network. And right now, I'm going to be bringing you the latest and greatest going on around the world of Hollywood. A lot to get into today. Some exciting Star Wars news came out over the weekend and today. I'm going to talk about a few more release dates. Not even a few, a bunch of release dates that were shifted over this last weekend. Also, I'm going to have reviews on Extraction and Bad Education films that I watched over the weekend, but the first thing that I want to talk about are two annual TV reviews that I've usually done over the last few weeks, and I've usually saved them till the end of the show, but I want to kickstart them off to begin the week and to begin this show of the Sam Vassell Podcast, and the first one that I want to talk about is the penultimate episode of Westworld Season 3, Episode 7, Past Pawn, and we're kind of really getting into the end game now of where we set everything up, where the story set everything up in its first few episodes, and we got some reveals in the, the, the last two episodes. We're starting to kind of get the formation of what Dolores' plans are for a revolution, what Ciroc's plans are, and where everyone is seemingly going to end up at the season finale, which is going to air this Sunday, which is kind of crazy to think that this show started in the middle of March, March 15th, and... We're already at the end point of this season of Westworld. It went by really, really quick, but still got one more episode. But talk about the second to last one. It finds us with Dolores and Caleb continuing their journey. In When the preview episodes came out about two weeks ago about where the last few episodes were going to go, they showed Dolores and Caleb on horseback. And it seemed like we were back in Westworld in, in the theme park of Sweetwater, but it were actually in Mexico going to Ciroc's facility, which was showed in the fifth episode when we were finding out more about where it came from, who he is, what his, his plans are, his ideals are. And it's the factory in which he shows his the the head fund manager what he's looking to do and also of really when he's really looking to balance the powers and and weed out people that are outliers in his perfect system, he tries to conform them and rehabilitate them to fitting the system. And so Dolores and Caleb go to this facility that's has a few guards. We're introduced to this really, really cool gun that has a drone. And I was watching it with my, with my brother, and we were talking about and joking about how it this drone looked like it was kind of the, the drone you see in Call of Duty that you fly it around and it blows up a certain area of, of enemy opponents. And it seemed like it had that kind of factor about it. But what was cool about it was it was a drone mixed in with uh, a sniper rifle. So it, it picked off these certain... The, these certain bad guys that targeted them, and then the gun actually fired off to where each of these bad guys were. So that was really, really cool to see. And when they get into the factory, we get to learn more about Sorak and his brother and the way that they wanted to create this perfect world where they have Rebolum, and it's the the system that they that they have right now, but there was an older system that they utilized that they're now trying to keep contained. And during this time, we're learning more about Caleb's origins. So throughout the season, we've seen Caleb have visions of his friend dying. He was in the military. It seemed like there was a mission that went wrong when actually it was a reverse where it seemed like the system was targeting outliers within using the, this app that was shown at the very beginning of the season in episode one when Caleb Aaron Paul's character uses this app that is basically Uber for for crimes happening. It's called Rico. And this Rico app was used by Ciroc and his company to find these outliers. And it seemed like 
there was it was a it was a a mission gone wrong on the Rico app and it ended up killing his friend, and so you get to see kind of Caleb is a murder for hire basically for Ciroc's company and for creating this system in that he was re-educated and repurposed to kind of reconfigure the origins of what really happened to make it seem like they were in the military and it was a mission gone wrong. So I really like how they, even in a penultimate episode, they really dived into Aaron Paul's character, Caleb, and gave us that fully fledged version of this is what actually happened. Because we always knew there was something off. We didn't know if he was a host or if if he was reprogrammed, which he was, and if there was something else afoot. And so it really sets up his character nicely to where we end him off is in, in the season finale where a lot of articles have really kind of just opposed it to the Terminator franchise where it seems like Dolores has always had an eye for Caleb. And the reason for that is it seems like he is going to be the the Terminator or the John Connor of setting up this on switch to start this robotic revolution that's going to come on, but Caleb doesn't know that yet. And so I found that really interesting. And this aspect of the episode, I think, was the strongest of the entire episode of the character arcs that we got. We also saw Maeve hunting down Dolores, and we finally got that long-awaited battle that we were looking for between Dolores and Maeve, and it did not disappoint. There was some great hand-to-hand combat, some great sword fighting, some great gun sequences. It was really, really cool and lived up to the hype. And the way it ended, I I was really intrigued, and I'm excited to see where it all comes afoot. The one thing that I started to worry me about this season was that we were repeating or just kind of updating some of the character stories as we were going along and specifically that comes with the Bernard character I felt like Bernard since really the fourth episode has just kind of been along for the ride to just keep on tracking down Dolores and is really just kind of being set up as somebody that is just playing the game until he gets to the season finale and hopefully we get more for him but I liked his first and second episode where his character was going and the fourth episode I liked how it was finding out where Dolores was and that part of it was really unique but it just seems like there's nothing else they've been giving Jeffrey Wright at this point where even in season two, despite the qualms that I have with that season, I thought they really gave him a lot to do and there was a great expansive in-depth look of, of his character that they just didn't give him yet. And I, even though I, I enjoyed aspects of this episode, I definitely find myself really liking more of the first few episodes from episode one to episode five really I thought those were really the strongest of the bunch so far and I I always look at whenever they do shorter seasons it might just be that oh this is the story that they have drawn out they don't have drawn out to 10 episodes when in fact last season you might have been able to do eight episodes this season I felt like it really could have amounted to 10 episodes of I think the way that they explored this season of the first few episodes really going in depth into each character and every episode is kind of dedicated to one or two storylines once it got to the the sixth seventh episode I felt like they're trying to reach that end game while still trying to set things up that they could have definitely used in ninth and tenth episode to explore these characters more in depth and deliver I think on on really fleshing out Bernard's character a little bit more and even more so on this whole thing with Dolores and Charlotte and kind of and even though they did a really good job with that in, in the last episode with, with Tessa Thompson they could have explored that more with some of the other hosts we still don't really know who that fourth host is we know oh, that 
embodies the coding of Dolores. So we might find that out in, in the season finale as well. The one thing I'm hoping for get going previewing the season finale is that I hope this isn't a one and done for Aaron Paul with Caleb because I really want to see more of that character. He's really the the plug in, the outlet that we have into the human world. So I hope they keep him around. And I wonder what's going to happen with Ciroc. Are they going to keep him around? Is this going to be just a one and done for Vincent Cassell? Because I love that character and the 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 methodology that he uses and the the ideology that he he pursues to be so i wonder if they're going to keep that beyond season three but the, and the one thing that i think i had going for me now is that i know that they're going to continue the story so i know this isn't just the end there's more to the story than just leaving it off on the season finale but even though this was an okay episode that had a really strong storyline with developing caleb and fully realizing that and what dolores's end game is with him Oh, I hope Bernard gets a little bit more. And William, I thought, had a really strong episode in, see, in the last episode. But he's been kind of somebody where I think they they could have utilized more with him than just setting him up for the season finale. And that's it and only having three episodes. This could have de- definitely used ten episodes. But I want to see where the finale ends it before I really fully put my stamp on it that this could have had more episodes. I want to see where they end these storylines. They can they leave some of it for season four. Where do they leave things after building it up from the first episode? I'm really interested in that. But an okay episode otherwise, not as strong as some of the other episodes in this season. But again, a, a really realization of Caleb's character I was really interested in. The Maeve Dolores fight sequence lived up to the hype. Just wanted more for Bernard's character because we've kind of left him behind a little bit since the beginning of this season. If you guys have seen this episode of Westworld, what did you guys think about it? Let me know down below in the comment section and leave your thoughts. Moving on to another review that I have for The Last Dance. And Sunday nights, they're always, to me, my favorites, especially when it comes to television. I've never been more jam-packed than I have with Sunday night television. It started out with Westworld and now it's a a three hour extravaganza where I watch The Last Dance, where I watch with my dad and my brother from nine to eleven, and then right after that, my brother and I we watch Westworld. So it's always a, a one two three combination that comes with Sunday nights, and so there's always a lot to talk about. And The Last Dance kind of as it's been doing with a lot of the sports fans, it's been giving us craving that hunger that we've had for sports content, and really has allowed us to dive into a. A, an NBA history that has been shown and, and and looked at for so long, but gives us a new avenue and a new insight into it. And I really love the first two episodes. They showed us the history of Jordan and, and Pippen a little bit. And this these two episodes focus specifically on Dennis Rodman and Phil Jackson. And what I think each episode does so well is that they really kind of weave in the 97-98 Bulls run, which was the last dance, while also making sure that the topics they talk about fit in very well with certain characters' past and weaving it into the Bulls dynasty when they were running, winning those championships from 1 to 5 before the 6-1. And they also talk about the history of Jordan's early years as the Bulls, which we saw in Episode 2, talking about his 63 points against the Boston Celtics. And this episode, the, the third one, talked about Dennis Rodman and how he fitted in with the Bulls and how he was the number two guy to to, to Jordan during about like a, a, a two months span when Scottie Pippen was sitting out for injury and how it was really the dynamic duo of Jordan and Rodman at a time. And then it went on to talk about Rodman's history a little bit 
and which if you want to know a, a more expansive history about Dennis Rodman, I highly suggest watching the 30 for 30 detailing Rodman's life, his career, and his personal life. It's so informative and gives you such insight into a a very a, a well-meaning character, but somebody who is very misunderstood and somebody that it takes a lot of understanding to know somebody like that. But The Last Dance and the time that has to cover everything does a very good job of doing a brief history jump of Dennis Rodman and then going to the crucial point of when he started his career as a Detroit Piston, specifically with the Bad Boys, which won the championship in 89 and 90, and how Jordan's Bulls and the Bad Boys became a much heated rivalry between the late 80s into the early 90s when Jordan won his first championship. So I think these two episodes really detailed how well that rivalry took place and how it bettered Jordan and also at the same time introduced Phil Jackson. And we also got to know a lot more about Phil Jackson. I didn't know a ton. I, I knew the basics about him, but I didn't really know he was really into Native American history that much. And he was also somebody that really bonded well with Dennis Rodman and also to the fact that Phil Jackson was a New York Nick and, and he coached in the Spanish League for a few years in Puerto Rico. He was really all over the place and he was somebody that was an outsider that thought differently and came into the Bulls and really brought that together. And I loved how three and four really tied that together in which episode three lives you off with the cliffhanger of Dennis Rodman going to Vegas and then the craziness of, of coming back 72 hours later instead of the 48 hours in which Phil Jackson talks to him and they have this relationship and it ties into Phil's relationship with Michael and how he came up and he was an assistant coach and then he was brought up as the head coach and along with some of his assistants came up with the triangle offense and talked about how Jordan wasn't really a fan of Phil Jackson at first but then he he it grew on him and the fact that he didn't have to be a one-man show and that even though Michael Jordan was still shooting like crazy and was the high the high scorer on the team. He still dished it out to his other players and it contributed and it led them to win that first championship in 1991. And they swept the Bad Boy Pistons during that playoff run to eventually winning the championship against Magic Johnson Lakers. And so I just love how this show is just weaving in and out of every single character and its history and going back to the 97-98 run and and how it all just kind of ties in together in some way, in some form. I love how they're doing that and talking to all these people and these different storylines. I can't even imagine the storyboards and the whiteboards that had each episode down to what they were going to do. It's, it's absolutely incredible. And the fact that this shows Michael Jordan as somebody that had to climb the ladder to get to prosperity and the, of the fact that it wasn't like he was a great player already, but kind of like today's NBA where you have Jordan, Kevin Durant, they all had to face hardships in winning championships, and, and that's exactly what Jordan had to do. And he says that in order to get to that championship echelon of Larry Bird, Magic Johnson, he had to beat them. He had to to, to win championships in order to get to that place because he was already considered in the conversation with them, but he needed that first championship to get there, and he did that, and he cemented his place amongst those great legends. And so I just love how they talk about Jordan's legacy, the Bulls' legacy, how it all came together, how these two unique characters and Dennis Rodman and Phil Jackson fit well within the Bulls' culture and really went hand-in-hand with one another. And talk and, and seeing what Dennis Rodman did and, again, that, that Vegas trip of, of just partying like crazy that he 
kind of he always acted out, but at the same time when Jordan got Pippen back, Dennis Rodman was the 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 they said in the documentary that he was that third wheel of that relationship and that he felt left out and he resented that a little bit and that he acted out on that not by not playing, but in the fact that he wanted a forty eight hour vacation and that he went to Vegas and that he exceeded that that forty eight hours and went to seventy two hours and Jordan had to literally go to his bachelor pad where I was listening to an interview that was a director, and he talked about how there was – even Jordan said that he wouldn't name what was in there, but there would be drugs and alcohol and all kinds of things, and that he was dating Carmen Electra at the time, and that Carmen Electra said that she would spend the night, and that, that day that Jordan came back, she was over Dennis Rodman's place and had to hide under the covers and hide behind furniture so Jordan wouldn't see her when he was dragging Rodman from his place to the practice facility to get back – to playing with the bull. So it, it it's just stuff you would think that's out of a TV show, but it actually happened. So I, I just think that the directors, the the editors, the the writers, that they were just able to create such a fluid story so far in these first four episodes. And I'm excited to see where it goes with five and six, where we'll talk. It, it talks about the not just the rise, but the peak of where Jordan was in his popularity, how he really created the brand of a player with with marketing and advertising. And I'm excited to see where it goes from here. And I have no doubt that they'll continue to do what they're doing. And it just gets me excited to see where they go from here. What did you guys think of these latest episodes of The Last Dance? If you have seen them, are you excited about this show that they've been doing so far? If you're a sports fan, has this been craving your need for sports content coming to this every single Sunday? Let me know what you think down below in the comment section and leave your thoughts. Now moving on to some reviews for... Some movies that I saw this weekend, some new additions that came out both on Netflix and HBO Go. Really, again, for not just sports fans, but for us movie fans now to, to have some craze for new content. We got that this weekend with the new Chris Hemsworth film, Extraction, which I'm going to talk about first. It's directed by Sam Hargrave, who has a connection to the MCU with the Russo brothers, in which Joe Russo wrote the script for this film. But Sam Hargrave was a stunt double and a, a, coordinate, a, a assistant unit director for the Avengers films, Infinity War and Endgame. So he has a lot of ties to the MCU, to this project, and everyone that's involved with it. And he comes from the background of the the, the David Leeches, the Chad Stahenskys of the world, those kind of new modern action gurus that give us some incredible action films that have come out over the last few years, specifically with the John Wick franchise, with Atomic Blonde, with Hobbs and Shaw last year with Leech. We've gotten some incredible action sequences, and that's the one thing that Extraction does so well, which stars Chris Hemsworth, is that I'll get to the negatives first, where, well, first before I even get to the negatives and the positives, this film is basically about a mercenary who is tasked with extracting a high-value target who's this kid of a prison drug lord, and he has to escape the, the, the corrupt governments, drug lords of getting this kid who is a high-value target out of the area alive. And the story is intriguing, but at the same time, it's a very dull, straightforward plot. There's not a lot to really hone in on here. There's not a lot to really explore or go in-depth with. It's really kind of a, a out-of-time-and-get-this-person-out sequence that it really takes place. And there's not a really a lot of character development with a lot of these characters other than Tyler Rake's character. I thought Chris Hemsworth is really the highlight of this movie in terms of characters that happen. I thought the, the, the actor who played the kid was okay, and their relationship was good. They had some good chemistry between one another. 
But other than that, that's pretty much it. Chris Hemsworth gives the best that he possibly can with what he's given. He gives a great emotional depth to this character that I was just, I was very surprised with. And even at the end of a very predictable story, I still felt for his character at the very end. So that's a credit to the way that the characters wit- the, the the way that the characters was written. But at the same time, the way that Chris Hemsworth gives a uh, a really good performance that we we know that he can do and deliver outside of the Thor franchise. But other than that, the other characters are not that well developed. David Harbour, who I think is a really good actor, and I love him as Hopper, and I can't wait to see him in the MCU as a Red Guardian in the new Black Widow movie. He's not given a lot to do here. He plays the typical character that you would expect him to play if you've seen the trailers. And he's and he's in it for only a little bit, and he's not given a lot to do. There's not a lot of development otherwise with some of these characters as well. And the plot is very straightforward when something starts to happen and you can predict this is probably what's going to happen next. And right away, a few seconds later, that is exactly what happens at the end. You think, well, this per- this character is in this predicament, so this and this and this is going to happen. And then a few minutes later, those exact scenarios play out to a T. And so I just don't think the, the, the story is – it's straightforward, but it's not the greatest script in the whole wide world but what makes this movie great, not even great, but really at least entertaining and something that you can definitely watch and enjoy, for, especially when we're all in self-quarantining, is the action. The action is what you watch this movie to see. And I think one thing that I wish I would have saw that, that I would have seen on the big screen is this action. There's, of course, that very famous one that has been talked about when you listen to interviews with Sam Hargrave, with Chris Hemsworth, with the Russos, everyone that, that's on this virtual press tour for this film, they talk about and the questions are about this one shot, this very, very long 12-minute action sequence that takes place in one shot that includes a car chase, uh, a foot chase, some action sequences all wrapped into into what's edited as a one-taker. And it's done beautifully. There's some great gun action, gun-fu, as it's now being known in, in the John Wick franchise. There's some great gun-fu in this as well it's bloody it's brutal and so you definitely go for the action the action makes up for anything you might expect with the plot so i definitely if you're looking for something deep meaning and emotional you might get that a little bit with chris hemsworth character but other than that don't go into this expecting something meaningful this is it's it's a very straightforward dull turn your brain off just enjoy it have fun especially in times where we're craving new stuff this is something to check out have fun with if you're a fan of chris hemsworth you'll love him in this film so this is it's just something that has something for everyone i think that is looking for just some fun crazy non-stop thrilling dirt down and dirty action that you can have fun with and i think i would have enjoyed seeing the action on the big screen because it definitely delivers it as you could see it on the big screen but Again, a fun, entertaining movie that you can enjoy in the times like these, and I give it a 6 out of 10. It's good enough to enjoy, especially with those action sequences, save this movie from being a bad movie to a good enough film due to the terrific action sequences that are in place in this film. Then the last movie that I want to talk about is one that I, I want to end on, on a positive note on, and a very, very positive note, and that is Bad Education, which is directed by Corey Finley, and it stars Hugh Jackman, Allison Janney, and Ray Romano, based off of a true story that happened in, on Long Island in 2002, in which the biggest embezzlement scandal in school in school system history happened during this time period, and... 
this was a story that I knew a little bit about going into it in terms of I knew the, the synopsis of the film, but I didn't know a whole lot about the characters involved and what really happened. And this film is fantastic. It is, again, based on true events. So if you're somebody that loves to kind of see the films that are based off of real things that actually happened, this is one to check out. The, it's it's a film that is written really well. Again, I didn't know a lot about this going into it. And the twists and the turns that happened, I was shocked by it. I was I was more not mortified, but I was I said this can't this couldn't actually happen. It maybe didn't happen that specific way, but the actual details of the events that happened, it's insane to think about. And somebody who who went to Hofstra University for five years and and got to know the area of Long Island a little a little bit, it, it had that Long Island feel. Hugh Jackman is the, the character he plays isn't somebody from that's on Long Island, but he is phenomenal in this film. So is Allison Janney, who does a great New York, Long Island accent. It just had that Long Island feel to it. And Ray Romano is is as good as he's ever been in something at the age that he's in and at his time as an actor. But the the, the dialogue is great. The, the, the plot is driven so well. It's got some great dialogue in here. The script is fantastic. The, the, the acting is superb on another level. The chemistry between Alice and Janie and Hugh Jackman is incredible. And Hugh Jackman plays somebody who is who's who's always trying to put up a front, but by the end of the film, you you strip down this armor and see somebody for who he truly, truly is and, and what he thinks is valuable in life. And, and I think he just he does an incredible job with that. And sometimes you feel for the character. As despicable this character might be, sometimes... You, you feel bad for him in a certain way, and that is a credit to the way that Hugh Jackman portrays this character, and I just think it's it's absolutely incredible, and another film that I would have loved to see get some theatrical love, but HBO, I've never liked an HBO film as much as I've liked this one. It's been a long time. I think the last time I really was engaged in a film like this from HBO Films was Game Changer with Julianne Moore, Woody Harrelson, Ed Harris. That was... The, the the details about the McCain campaign and Sarah Palin and I was enthralled with that film and I was just as enthralled with this one about this again you you wouldn't think this is a true story but it is a true story with these insane characters and Hugh Jackman Allison Janney this film is going to get some awards love not from the Oscars which I would have loved to see Hugh Jackman get another nomination same thing with Allison Janney for the entire film but I do think that Jackman Janey the film will get some Emmy love this year whenever the Emmys come around again so definitely one to watch out for if you have HBO Go, HBO Now, or if you ever catch it on, if you have HBO at all, definitely check it out when you have a chance. It's a 9 out of 10 for me. This is a, an amazing film, one of the best. Even though it's on HBO Films, it's on HBO. It's one of the best films I've seen so far this year. One to go check out when you have a chance. Have you guys seen Extraction or Bad Education? If you have, let me know what you think down below in the comment section. Leave your thoughts on what you think on both films or either or of the movies if you've seen any one of them. Moving on now to some movie news that happened over the weekend and I talked a little bit about on Friday how Paramount reshuffled their lineup. The Mission Impossible movies are moving from July of their respective release dates in 2021 and 2022 to November of those years. You had Mission Impossible 7 going against Fantastic Beasts 3 and Mission Impossible 8 going up against Shazam 2 at this particular moment in time. But those films are probably going to change one way or the other, whether it's MI7 or 8 changing or or Shazam 2 changing or Fantastic Beasts 3 changing in the future. 
But then after that, a few hours later, Sony and Marvel Studios decided on a Friday, let's just drop a whole lot of news for everyone to write about, consume, to have over the weekend and marinate on it. And Sony announced a plethora of changes they are making to the schedule, starting out with Connected from Sony Picture Animations, is moving from September 18th of 2020, just a month or so later, to October 23rd of 2020. Escape Room 2 from Columbia Pictures is moving from December 30th of 2020, just a few days later to January 1st of 2021. Fatherhood is moving from October 23rd of 2020 to April 2nd of 2021, facing off against Fast 9. Vivio is moving from April 16th of 2021 to June 4th of 2021. That is from Sony Pictures Animation. The popular franchise, Hotel Transylvania, the fourth film in the franchise, will be moving from December 22nd, 2021 and pushing up to August 6th of 2021. Man from Toronto from Columbia Pictures is moving from November 20th, 2021 to September 17th of 2021. Nightingale did not have a, it does not have a release date anymore. It was moved from December 25th of 2020 to a to be determined release date. And then we get into the the bigger news coming from these release dates. And the first one is that the sequel to the Academy Award winning Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse is moving from April 8th, 2022 to October 7th of 2022. So same year, different month for the sequel to the Academy Award winning film. And then Uncharted is being pushed from October 8th, 2021 to July 16th of 2021. And if that date, July 16th, sounds familiar and you're saying, does that belong to a certain webhead? Well, it did. And that is the untitled Spider-Man sequel from Marvel Studios with Tom Holland. It will be moving from July 16th, 2021 to November 5th of 2021. And if that date sounds a little familiar as well, that is because it was held at one point by the master of the mystic arts himself, Benedict Cumberbatch, a.k.a. Doctor Strange, in the Multiverse of Madness, is moving from November 5th, 2021 to March 25th of 2022, eclipsing Thor Love and Thunder to end the film slate of Phase 4. And when you're thinking, oh my god, I'm waiting so long for these films, what's going to happen? Oh my god, we're going to wait so long for Marvel films, what's going to happen? Well, if you want some positive news, it comes in the form of Love and Thunder, in which it didn't get pushed it didn't get pushed back. It got pushed up from February 18th to February 11th of 2022. So if you have a significant other that you want to take on Valentine's Day and you're both MCU fans, this will be the perfect film for you from Taika Waititi with Chris Hemsworth and Tessa Thompson and Natalie Portman. And then Disney also announced that there will be an, an untitled live action film on April 8th, 2022 and an untitled event film coming out on July 9th of 2021. So... A lot of information to take in just from that alone. I, I had a, There were so many releases that I had to look up on Twitter which ones to write in for my notes because they were just – I couldn't – some of them I'm able to bang off off the top of my head and remember, but a lot of these I wanted to make sure that I had a good account of where each film was going to come in place on. And for a lot of these, it makes, a, it makes sense – for all these really, it makes sense that these films are ones that 
are in the process of being in production right now. They can't be because of the shutdown. So they're going to have to move a lot of these release dates. We saw last week with Warner Brothers moving the Batman to a few months in 2021. And the same thing for a lot of these other films as well. But the big ones we're, of course, going to focus on is the ones regarding the MCU, specifically Spider-Man and Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness. This, the Spider-Verse sequel, I'm sure they haven't... They, they're, they're writing, they're in pre-production on that, and they haven't done voice acting yet, so they still have a ways to go before they have to come out with anything. So it makes sense to just add a little bit more padding to have it come out in October. And maybe it's just as great. They know they have success there when they came out in December of 2018, so they know that they have a solid release date if they come out in the latter half of 2020. But when we talk about Spider-Man, the, 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 the Tom Holland sequel, they basically flip-flopped a Tom Holland movie for a Tom Holland movie with Uncharted moving to that July 16th spot and Spider-Man taking that November 5th slot. And so it makes a lot of sense that they would want to move to that specific spot because they probably haven't started shooting it. They weren't supposed to start shooting until this summer and they don't know when they're going to start again or what's going to happen if they have to shoot international or if they're just going to shoot here locally in the States and in Georgia where they have a studio we don't know what's going to happen, so they're going to have to push it back. And this was going to be a given conclusion no matter what, even though there was speculation of even with Venom moving, is there going to be something that they can possibly do to maybe tie it together? And maybe that's still possible, but it doesn't seem like that is a an inevitability at this point that they'll connect together in some way, shape, or form. What is interesting is the connectivity of the MCU is... Not really in question here, but it raises an eyebrow in the fact that when Black Widow was delayed, it basically caused a ripple effect in terms of the theatrical releases of the MCU films that were coming out, where basically every single film was going to still come out in its same order, but just pushed over a release date and created a new one in 2022 for Thor Love and Thunder to come out on February 18th at the time before moving up to February 11th. And so... When when you look at this, basically what they did is they leapfrogged over Thor Love and Thunder for Doctor Strange. And basically, it doesn't really put the connectivity in jeopardy, but really begs the question, does the connectivity matter? And I think because of what we've gotten in the last two years with Avengers Infinity War and Endgame, and how even Ant-Man and the Wasp and Captain Marvel really did connect between the two movies that there's been a lot of interconnectivity between the, 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 the smaller films with the bigger films. And it's been like that since the beginning, but not really to a T. When we look at specifically what happened with Phase 3, really, you look at 2017, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 took place four months after the events of the first Guardians of the Galaxy, and not four months after Civil War, not four months after Infinity War, Age of Ultron, four months after the first film. And then you had Black Panther and Spider-Man, and they were all over the MCU. You didn't know, you knew they were taking place after some specific set of movies, but you didn't know where in the timeline if they really all connected together in a certain specific way. And so I think with Infinity War and Endgame, we've gotten really caught up in every single thing that has to connect. And the beauty of what made, well, even still what makes the MCU great is the fact that Everything connects, but not every single thing connects, where you have bigger overall plots that happen throughout the films that weave in and out together, but not every single plot detail will actually have to tie into everything. And the same thing goes for these Disney Plus 
shows that are going to be coming out. And that begs the question, too, what's going to happen with, with these Disney Plus shows? Because Kevin Feige has always said, and from the minute he said it at Comic-Con last year, that WandaVision will have an immediate impact on Doctor Strange 2. And at that point, Elizabeth Olsen was set to appear in Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness. And I'm sure that's still the case. But what happens with WandaVision now? Does WandaVision now have to move, even though it's probably done now? Does it now have to move to, say, instead of going to December of 2020 of 2020 this year, does it go to December of 2021 now? Does it go to November 2021? Same thing with Loki. What happens? And I'm sure that's going to have to be moved because they were still filming that show. So what happens to a lot of these Disney shows as well that does everything have to connect in a certain way or can you have some leniency the same thing that happened with the, the the MCU at this current moment in time where you knew Thanos was out there, but not everything came back to Thanos in some way, shape, or form. You had you had Spider-Man that didn't really connect with it. Doctor Strange never really connected to Civil War or Age of Ultron. They had references. Ant-Man, for example, didn't really per se connect with Age of Ultron, but it had Easter eggs and it had a cool scene that connected to Civil War in the end with Falcon and Ant-Man fighting in the first Ant-Man movie, and then you talked about S.H.I.E.L.D. and the events of Age of Ultron, but it wasn't a direct sequel. You had references, so not everything has to be a direct sequel or prequel to something that everything in the end will connect, which evidently you all wanted to because we, we saw what happened with Endgame and Infinity War. We, we want that, but not every single movie has to connect in some way, shape, or form that Eternals has to connect with Shang-Chi right after the right in between these these two movies or that Doctor Strange has to connect with with Thor at the very end. It can and it should, but it doesn't absolutely have to. You can still have this loose connection that you tie up in some way shape or form. So, I think that brings the the the, the connectivity to it of at least this phase into some question. But I wonder if maybe that Marvel and Disney are just putting this as a placeholder and that Doctor Strange might move back to 2021 in their future and that maybe Disney and Sony worked out that, okay, let's put Spider-Man's film on that November slot and maybe we'll move the other movies that are coming out. Because right now, between Doctor, between Thor Love and Thunder and then Doctor Strange, there is, or excuse me, not Doctor Strange, but between Thor Love and Thunder and then Black Panther 2, there is about a 42-day gap right now. Between or excuse me, not 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 Thor. Or excuse me, not Black Panther. It is Doctor Strange that's coming out March twenty fifth. So it's about a forty two day window from Thor: Love and Thunder to Doctor Strange, and that, that there hasn't been that big of a window since two thousand eight between or that short of a window between between Iron Man and Incredible Hulk in two thousand eight when they were the first two films in the very very infant stage of the MCU at that point, and the closest gap we've gotten in the, in the last few years was last year between Captain Marvel and Avengers Endgame, where that was about a 49 or so day gap. So, and then you have Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness, and then you have Black Panther 2 coming out in May, then you have Captain Marvel. So, do you, at that point, that Marvel has done a great job of having two three films come out a year where they dominate a quarter of the market throughout the year. So, say, last year, for perfect example, Captain Marvel dominated the... the the springtime from March to April, and then Avengers Endgame came out and destroyed the end of spring into the summertime. And then you had Spider-Man Far From Home destroy the latter half of the summertime. And then you talk about what 2014, for example, you had 
Captain America, the Winter Soldier, come out in April. You have that destroy the spring and the April, or the, 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 the into the May into the summer. And then you had you had Guardians of the Galaxy beat out August. And the same thing in 2017, another example. You had Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 kick off the summer movie season in May. And then you had Spider-Man Homecoming in July. And then you had Thor Ragnarok in November where they dominated the four quadrants. So you can still have that. But at the same time, these films might eat each other up alive. And they might they might even each other out in one way or another. And they one might lose box office over the other. So I think Marvel is going to restructure some of the release dates that they have. I'm sure Kevin Feige is going to be working on it. And Disney Plus is having a shareholders meeting soon, and I'm sure we'll get more information about the Disney Plus shows that are going to be coming out in the next few days, or not even the next few days, in the next few weeks, about where these Disney Plus shows are going to be coming out. So a lot of uncertainty, a lot of questions about what's going to be happening with the MCU going forward. What do you guys think about all of these release dates from the Mission Impossible films to Hotel Transylvania 4 to Uncharted moving up from October to July of 2021 to the Spider-Man movies being pushed back? What do you guys think about this? Let me know down below in the comment section and leave your thoughts below. Moving on now to some news regarding AMC theaters and according to Hollywood Reporter and Variety that... There have been reports coming out over the last few weeks that Disney, uh, that AMC might go bankrupt, and they took out a five hundred million dollar loan to keep things open at least till maybe the summertime. And over the last week or so, Georgia has started to open things back up again, and some other states in the next few weeks are going to be following the steps to reopen their own states into enforcing social distancing. And one of the things that has been a question mark is what are the theaters going to be doing? And it seems like the theaters are going to be taking a collective mindset of opening at their own discretion. And it seems like AMC is going to absolutely be doing that as they have come out and said that they will not reopen their 630-plus locations in the United States until there is brand new Hollywood product to roll out. And this is from a statement directly from AMC as they say, As we plan our reopening, the health and safety of our guests and associates is our absolute highest priority. To be able to open, we also need a line of sight into a regular schedule of new theatrical blockbusters that get people truly excited about returning to their favorite movie theaters. Those blockbusters are scheduled to return this summer, beginning with Warner Brothers' Tenet and Disney's Mulan, and with many more regular titles scheduled immediately thereafter. While we expect to open our theaters in the weeks ahead of of these new blockbusters, Utilizing creative programming of immensely popular previously released films, we would be other we would be wise to do so only directly in advance of the of the release of major new movie titles. AMC is currently working through every detail required to successfully showcase these exciting new releases in an environment that's safe and welcoming for moviegoers, and we will share those details as we get closer to the dates when our theaters will reopen. And that is a statement from AMC theaters themselves. And what they said, I think, personally makes absolute sense. Once again, even though in times of crisis like this, they show the way of the thinking of where movie theaters most likely will go. The major theater corporations, that is. When we talk about Regal, Cinemark, they're the ones that people are looking at. When are they going to open again? And Cinemark CEO has come out and said that they're looking at a, a June release of opening, slowly opening theaters back up again. And then by mid-July, when Tenet rolls around, that is when 
that they'll have new release content to come out with. And it seems like right now what they're hoping for is that the end, the end game, at least for them to open back up and have new films, is Tenet, Christopher Nolan's new film, and Disney's Mulan. That's what they're looking at right now is the goal, to open back up again for those movies. But what AMC is saying really is that we're going to open up a little bit more in line with when those films come out. Because basically they're saying that even though we're probably going to need to have older content, like again, I always bring up like what China was going to do before they close down again. So you have the four Avengers films come out for people to watch again, and you have Avatar. Then you can have those films come out to gauge the, 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 the temperature of the room and see what people are thinking of their mindset of coming out to a movie theater again. But how long is that really going to hold up for when you're going to want new content to advertise, which is Nolan's new movie, the Mulan movie you can advertise as well, getting people not to see older content but brand new content as well. And so you can maybe say a few weeks before new mo- before July 17th rolls around, you can add in the Avengers movies. You can add in, let's say, Bad Boys for Life, let's say if, if they were to come out again into the theaters. And so you can advertise, hey, we have these movies to go. you can go check out for a week or two, come and see them, gauge what happens, and then you release the bigger movies and see how that goes from there. It's Is it a risk? Absolutely. But in times like these, some businesses are going to have to take risks at this point when it comes to when it comes okay to opening things up at some point. And when it comes to the movie theater industry and, and the public going industry, when the public is able to go be themselves again in some way, shape, or form with these new social distancing rules, businesses are going to have to kind of advertise themselves in some way and say, come to us and be and, and, and enjoy this. And at the same time, what AMC I think is going to do as well, and I think this is going to be a cue from a lot of other theaters, is also ensuring new guidelines and that... Right now, they, I think they see a release date. They see a time that they want to come back in. And then during this time period, they can, they'll be able to have the liquidity and the capital they need to stay afloat for right now while also setting new guidelines for what they want to do. Again, this is pure speculation on my point of what their mindset might be in terms of hiring a new staff. They're going to have to install new social distancing guidelines just for the floor themselves, so concessions, they have the, the the drinking systems that they have. They might have to close one or two of those down in order to have social distancing. You might not have as many lines. You're going to have to kind of create new lines for people when the, when you have an overflow, say, of people to keep that social distancing apart. You're going to have to sanitize. I've Again, I've worked at an AMC theater. They You are scrubbing things down as much as you possibly can, and they will make sure that you scrub every single thing down when somebody touches a a surface or whatever you will be scrubbing it down after they touch it and cleaning the theaters once again and then of course you implore the seating arrangements what's going to happen are you are people going to be sitting in place sitting within five six feet apart of one another sitting in other seats what's going to be happening with that and then actually a point that actually my dad was bringing up which was really really interesting is the fact that what happens if people don't abide by this let's say if you have a family of four people what if you all want to sit together? Are, are you going to have ushers that say, excuse me, you can't do that? What what distancing qualifications, what guidelines are you going to implore and put in place that adheres to what governments are going to want to be the restrictions? And then, of course, that leaves them to have a few weeks to put these new films in effect and see what happens and, and just 
pray that people have the mindset that they want to come to the theaters, that they feel socially adequate enough, and that they feel responsible enough to go to a theater and that they won't get sick. I think that that's going to be what they're looking at right now. And I also I think that they're going to want to come back together as a whole company, that once states open, it's not just going to be that AMC theaters open in this one state and then another state. They're going to want to say, okay, all of our theaters had these guidelines in place. All of our theaters are ready for this to come up. They all open together as a company. Just as they shut down as a company, they're going to all open up again. I think the same thing will happen with Regal. I think the same thing will happen with Cinemark and even other theaters as well. That is what they will be doing. And you look at the blockbusters, the next ones to come out. Again, Christopher Nolan's Tenet. It looks like, according to every single theater owner from, from Cinemark to AMC, what they've said, July 17th seems to be like that date right now where they're, they are designating that as the, the date to get something back up and running right now. That could change in the next two days. That could change in the next week. But right now, Tenet is that end date right now. Then you have Mulan, and then you have Wonder Woman 1984. So you have three blockbusters to get people back into the theaters if the middle of July is what you're looking at. The following week, you have Mulan, and then about a month, a little less than a month later, you have Wonder Woman 84 to come out. And maybe that could be the big movie that you get people into and that, that people know Gal Gadot. They know the brand of Wonder Woman where people maybe a month or so after the theaters open, they say, you know what? This seems like the theaters are okay. Nothing has happened. No one's reported anything. Let's go into the movies and experience Wonder Woman 84. So that could be – Wonder Woman could be that film where people see Tenet maybe as that film to break through. And it could very well break through and make a lot of money. But I think Tenet will be that guinea pig. I think, unfortunately, Mulan might be that guinea pig, too. I think Wonder Woman 1984 could be that film where if for about a whole month, if nothing, if there's no news about movie theaters and people getting sick from the movie theaters, I think by a month or so, if things are going okay and the social distancing guidelines are in place, people might come back into the movie theaters and Wonder Woman 1984 could be that movie to make it happen with. What do you guys think about AMC imploring that they're not going to come out again until something new comes out in Hollywood, new Hollywood or product rolls out. Do you think they'll be open by Tenet's time, July 17th? Do you think Tenet's going to move? Do you think any of these movies are going to move? Let me know what you think down below in the comment section. Leave your thoughts down below. Moving on now to some news, some some Star Wars news that's coming out over the last few days. And the first one I want to talk about comes from the Hollywood Reporter itself in which there's some new details regarding the Cassian Andor prequel show that is coming from Disney+. Plus. And the first thing is that there are two new cast members joining, or rather one brand new cast member and one returning actor replaying a very famous character from the Star Wars universe. The first newcomer is Denise Goh, who will be portraying an unnamed character, name, unnamed right now so far in the reports. And then Guinevere O'Reilly will be coming back to resume the role of a younger Mon Mothma who is very well known from her time in Return of the Jedi. And then it was replaced by somebody who looked exactly like her, like a very young woman of herself. And she played her in Revenge of the Sith and she played her in Rogue One. So she will be coming back to the role of Mon Mothma in this new series, which doesn't have a title. It's just labeled the Cassian Andor series as of right now. New details regarding the plot of the movie. The only thing we've gotten is a timeline of when these events take place in which they are five years set before Rogue One, a Star Wars story. And you have Diego Luna coming back and it's going to be a spy thriller that is being set for this for this show. And that there is a new showrunner in place now and that is Tony Gilroy who actually co-wrote 
Rogue One, and according to a bunch of the reports from Rogue One, they were the one, Tony Gilroy was the one that kind of revamped the entire third act. He directed a lot of the reshoots, taking over from Garrett Edwards, even though Garrett Edwards received a bulk of the credit, his name's on the film, and that he gets the credit for it. It seemed that there were a lot of reports that Tony Gilroy had a big hand in finishing that movie, so he has an idea of this character, of this part of the world that is involved with Rogue One and the, the tie-ins, and he's replay, replacing Stephen Schiff, who was the showrunner before exiting. Tony Gilroy will also be directing the pilot and possibly a second episode in the show. And according to reports, it seems like the Lucasfilm and Disney Plus, kind of like what they're doing with Mandalorian, they'll be looking to do a roundtable of directors. So just as Dave Filoni directed the first episode, Rick Fuginaga did the second and sixth episode, Deborah Chow did the third and and the seventh episode and then Taika Waititi did the eighth episode it seems like that's exactly what they're going to be looking to do with this casting and or show and it seems like I wouldn't be surprised if they did it with the brand new show coming from the Russian Doll creator the one show that doesn't have somebody that doesn't have a round table is the Obi-Wan show which right now all of the episodes that are going to be in that show will be directed by Deborah Chow who directed episodes of The Mandalorian and so hearing this news it, it gets me excited I'm not surprised by the Tony Gilroy replacement. It, it would have been big news, of, let's say, if both those people were out and somebody else completely took over and there was a delay in the production of it. To me, this is just, it's happened so much in Lucasfilm that Tony Gilroy coming in, it makes sense. He knows the universe of, of Rogue One. He knows the character. Let him do what he needs to do with it. Mon Mothma coming back, I thought I think that's a great addition. It makes sense. I'm sure at this time, Cassian Andor is a part of the Rebel Alliance, and I think it'll kind of hone in on that character of playing both sides in terms of he's he's a rebel, but at the same time, he's had to make difficult choices, and we could see a cameo from, from Jimmy Smits once again, who plays Leia's stepfather. Maybe we get to see him as, as Senator Bail Organa. Maybe he comes back. He came back for Rogue One, so... Do we get his character, Mon Mothma, conspiring once again and see scenes of them again, which I think they delivered one of the best scenes of Rogue One when they talk about Obi-Wan and Leia. That was really, really a cool tie-in in A New Hope. So do we get scenes with Diego Luna and, and Mon Mothma? So I think it, it adds some intrigue to this, but we st there's still a long ways the way to go before we get any footage of this, before we get any other details especially with the COVID-19, with production down. We're, it's going to be a while before we see the show actually formulate. And then in other Star Wars news, this morning it was announced by Disney Plus and Disney that Star Wars The Rise of Skywalker will be foregoing its last three months or so of DVD sales. And while it's still, it'll still be online and for people to, to, to pick up on DVD, it'll be actually hitting Disney Plus on May 4th foregoing the last two months before it would come on to Disney Plus at around the summertime. And this makes a, a ton of sense. I'm happy about it. Disney did the exact same thing when the when the pandemic started with Frozen 2, where it was on DVD release, and it was supposed to come out a few months from the time that it did. And Disney decided to forego those last two months and put it right away on the streaming channel. And that is exactly what they're going to do with this. And to have it on May the 4th, it's Star Wars Day. May the 4th be with you. It seems that on a day which really talk kind of reveals a lot of the, the, the toy products and it's about a lot of the merchandise, it seems that Disney is really honed in on making sure that Star Wars Day 
has a great impact on Disney Plus and their streaming service. You have the finale, the series finale of Star Wars The Clone Wars, which I'm finishing up right now. I'll have reviews for the the second to last episode and the last episode on Friday and Monday. So um, I'm almost done with The Clone Wars. And then, of course, you have the brand new Mandalorian documentary, Disney Gallery, The Mandalorian, which it'll give you behind the scenes of the making of the first season. And then, of course, you can cap it all off with watching the finale of the Skywalker saga in Star Wars The Rise of Skywalker. So it, it's a May the 4th is going to be a great day to just consume Star Wars content from the morning till the nighttime. So if you're a big fan of that, I think it's exciting to kind of see that Disney is directing not just toward the toys, but to actual live media content, especially in times like this where you can't really go anywhere to get any toys and to, to get any books, but to, to watch something on Disney Plus and to ramp up the streaming service content for Star Wars fans to watch it on Disney Plus. It's a smart move on their part, and I'm excited for it. Again, despite the qualms that I may have with The Rise of Skywalker, I can't fault them for doing something like this and giving people the Star Wars content that they so desperately, desperately crave at this moment in time. What do you guys think about this? Let me know what you think down below in the comment section about the Star Wars news, about the casting and Andor show, and about Star Wars The Rise of Skywalker, and let me know your thoughts. And the final thing I want to talk about is to end it with the mark with the mouth, and that is Mr. Ryan Reynolds. According to The Hollywood Reporter, he and his director of Free Guy, Sean Levy, are working on a brand new film together, and Reynolds will star in it, Levy will direct it, and it will be the next film that they'll both be working on together. They're looking to shoot it at the end of 2020. And the basic plot of this film is that it's about a man who has traveled back in time to get help from his 13-year-old self. And together they encounter their late father who is the same age as the character Ryan Reynolds is playing. So it sounds like a kind of, of a funny action-adventure, heartwarming kind of movie that fits what Ryan Reynolds likes to do. And I guess... He had a lot of fun working with Sean Levy on Free Guy that they want to work together. and So that gives me hope for Free Guy at least that there's something in it that makes them want to work together again and do something that, that's creative and intuitive. And this sounds exactly something like Ryan Reynolds right up his alley that he would want to do. This film seems to be written by Jonathan Trooper. And so I'm interested in this film. It, it, it sounds intriguing, but again, it's all about the footage and, and what comes together with the project, but not a bad start to announce that you have Sean Levy and Ryan Reynolds coming on board for the project. What do you guys think about this news? Let me know what you think down below in the comment section and leave your thoughts. And guys, that's going to do it for this edition of the Sam Bissell Podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. Be sure to check out my channel for more content. You can check me out on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Radio Public, SoundCloud, and much more. Also, make sure to tune in onto the Ambiguous Network, and be sure to check out the other amazing shows that are on there, such as Udmat Bro, the number one source to see what the internet is pissed off about on a weekly basis. Also, make sure to check out goal-driven professionals geared toward improving client relations, return on investment, and customer acquisition costs for independent businesses and services. Also, check out our brand new show that is on there, The Daily Grind, a weekly motivational podcast with Kelly Johnson, giving you everyday tips and key takeaways on reaching your goals. You can check them out on the website, ambiguousproduction.com, also on Facebook and Twitter, at Real Ambiguous. And if you want to check out Canopy Treehouse, use the coupon code AMBIGUOUS. Also, after you're done checking out Ambiguous Network on their social media accounts, make sure to come and follow me on my social media accounts. You can find me on Twitter, at Samuel. that's B-U-S-S-E-L-L-S-A-M-U-E-L, and on Facebook, at Sam Thank you guys again so much, and until next time, keep on screening.